0: As midnight approached on December 4th, 1979, Edith Hasty and her four young sons were in bed in their two-storey council house in Hulls East. The estate sat along the rail line on Selby Street, a pub and cul-de-sac one end and the Hasty's home, almost right at the other, where the road turned sharply under an overpass. The boys' three sisters weren't home, They were sleeping at a relative's and babysitting for a friend of the family. The children's father, David, known as Tommy Hasty, wasn't home either. He was in jail on a 12-month sentence for burglary. As the house fell quiet, a shadowy figure approached without sound, pouring paraffin onto the porch and throughout the letterbox of the front door. After attempting to light a few matches, a piece of newspaper was rolled up, set alight and pushed through the letterbox. As flames engulfed the house, Edith ran to the boys' bedroom at the front of the first floor. Nine-year-old Thomas, who had muscular dystrophy, opened the bedroom window and tried to get everyone out, but only Edith would jump. She escaped, injuring her ankle on the way down, and ran for help, but the draught from opening the window caused a backdraft, which only made the fire worse. Thomas couldn't get his brothers out, and he ran to the back of the house, fleeing out of a window too on his own. As the fire brigade arrived on the scene, the fire was put under control, and the three boys trapped inside were all taken to the burns unit of Wakefield's Pinderfields Hospital with severe burns to three quarters of their bodies. Thomas, who had jumped, had survived with serious burns, and he and Edith were in a serious condition. Charles, who was 15, died that night in hospital. Paul, 12, and Peter, 8, were both in a critical condition, not expected to make it. At the house, as firemen entered the hallway, they were overcome with the smell of paraffin. When they took a look at the front porch, they realised that the fire was without a doubt deliberately lit. They were spent matches and a pool of paraffin on the ground. The police were called... With word that the first boy had died, the incident became a murder investigation and the hunt was on to catch the culprit. My name's Benjamin Fitton from Walk Among Us. Welcome to Murder Town, the podcast. Following each episode of Crime and Investigations' brand new true crime TV series, we'll explore another case right here. As Hull woke on the following morning, news of the fire meant everyone in the area came for a look. Everyone was whispering, many of the residents shocked, not by the fire so much, but the death of a boy they all knew. Police set up a tent in the front of the property, and began going door to door questioning everyone in the neighbourhood. The Hasty family were known to police, the boys well known as delinquents who vandalised property and committed petty robberies, nuisances. Their father had recently been put away for breaking into the local sports club. It didn't come as a complete shock to police that someone may have targeted them, someone who may have had a vendetta. When they started knocking door to door, it became clear, however, that no one would talk. Police weren't getting any cooperation. The whole community, it seemed, had hostility towards the Hasties. It became obvious that someone who knew the family was likely the culprit, and others in the community may have known who did it and refused to talk. Police had even found that a local boy had been cycling around the house as the fire was raging, before the fire brigade was called. He hadn't bothered to call anyone for help, he just watched the house burn. One hasty boy had died, and two others by this time were on their deathbeds, but police could barely find a local with any sympathy towards the family. The murder investigation got underway, led by Detective Superintendent Ronald Sagar. With no shortage of people wishing ill harm on the hasties, he told the press that never before had he encountered such hatred and dislike for a family. On the second day, in a rare action, the boy's father, Tommy Hasty was released from prison under the royal prerogative of mercy. Just before eight-year-old Peter, the second of his sons, would die in hospital. This left 12-year-old Paul still fighting for his life and little Tommy and Edith still in critical conditions. Police were coming up against a wall of silence. The hostility towards a troubled and somewhat hated family highlighted just how disjointed the community had become. There was a level of trust that had completely vanished from the fabric of the estate. Jobs were scarce, and many of the men who had once thrived as fishermen were left battered by the decline of the industry for small time catchers. Recently, an Icelandic trawler had landed a record catch, leaving the fishermen high and dry. Hull had seen its fair share of hard times in the past, and the community was tough and resilient. After the Hull Blitz during the Second World War, the city had seen 1,200 people killed by German bombs, second only to London in Britain's most bombed cities. Hull never really recovered. Redevelopment happened, but community spirit never reached what it was before. There had always been strength of the fishing industry, And as the city got back on its feet after the war, rebuilding and trying to boost morale, it received a huge blow when three trawler boats sank in early 1968, killing 58 crew members. As detectives spoke to locals after the Selby Street Fire, the squash spirits were evident. Down at the skate pound, in the side room of Rainer's, a well-known pub, a local deckhand made comment about the tragedy at the Hasty House saying that it was difficult, bad things happen, but other people also had their own problems to deal with. As the two-week mark approached and police seemed no closer to catching the arsonist, 12-year-old Peter died in the burns unit and Edith was released from hospital. As the hasty family came to terms with what had occurred, behind the scenes police were looking into a lead that seemed promising a mysterious note that had been delivered to the family just weeks before the fire. On a piece of cardboard from a Cornflake cereal box, a hand-scrawled note made it clear that someone hated the hasties enough to threaten them with a bomb. The note said, A family of fucking rubbish. We all hate you. You should all live on an island. Devil's Island. But I'm not kidding. But I promised you a bomb, and by hell I'm not kidding. Why don't you just flit while you've got the chance? If we can't get you out normally, then we'll bastard well bomb you out, and that's too good for you. The police took handwriting samples from hundreds of people living in the area, and by January they had interviewed thousands. It didn't take long, though, to find out that the note was a coincidence. A local elderly woman, a churchgoer, admitted to writing the note in a way she described as the only type of language they would understand. But she didn't start the fire. Detective Sagar and his team were still adamant it was the result of a local feud that had gone too far. As Christmas approached, Little Tommy, although still in hospital, was expected to recover. The police received a call traced to a telephone box. A man on the other end was recorded saying... I am sorry about Selby Street. I am sorry about the burning. After 30 seconds of silence, the caller hung up. In hope that the Hasties may recognise the voice, authorities played the recording for them, but they didn't. It gave police relief, however, that if the caller was genuine, he was feeling remorse for his actions and may soon come forward. The Hasties also received a call, on Christmas Eve, Tommy Hasty answered the phone to a man who was sobbing on the other end. I'm sorry for what I've done. I killed your children. That night, fueled with anger, Mr and Mrs Hasty went out seeking revenge, damaging neighbors' windows and shouting abuse that someone out there knew what had happened that night. They were arrested but released on bail. They were told not to frequent Selby Street again, except to attend the upcoming funeral for their children. They were kept at a hidden address for their own protection. On January 4th, 1980, some of the 70 detectives placed on the case attended the funeral of three of the four hasty sons. Some of the officers took photographs of the crowd outside the mission. They were focusing on the people from the community coming to pay their respects, or even, as they expected, come to stir up trouble. Edith was seen barely able to stand up, overcome with grief. She was hurling abuse at the crowd outside. Although reports vary slightly as to her exact language, she was said to yell It was one of you. I'll be back to get you. It was one of these bastards from this street who has done it. It's one of this crowd. Edith Hasty was also retaliating against those in her neighbourhood who had been suggesting that she herself had started the fire, something Detective Sagar supported her in, denying any truth to the rumours. Tommy the nine-year-old was still in hospital as the funeral procession began, three hearses slowly passing the fire-damaged house on Selby Street. As the coffins entered the church, Mrs Hasty once again yelled out, it was one of that crowd who has done it. It is one of them. As she clung to a railing, being restrained by a husband and taken into the packed out mission, Reverend Arthur Crozier told the congregation that someone unknown to them but known to God should seek forgiveness. After the funeral was over, Tommy and Edith Hasty faced court for the property damage charges from Christmas Eve. The magistrate allowed a pardon on special grounds, considering the deaths of their children, but they are issued a strong caution. Angelina Hasty was 16 when her three brothers were killed and her other brother and mother seriously injured by the Selby Street arsonist. She was at one of her relatives babysitting that night. With her parents' grief came the need for Angelina to step up and look after her remaining brothers and sisters. She was at a local pub when a boy she knew came up to her and said, ''Sorry to hear about your brothers.'' He was a local boy who used to be known as Peter, but had changed his name to Bruce Lee. She looked him straight in the eye and said, ''It's okay, Bruce.'' What she didn't realise was that Bruce was one of the boys the police had questioned over the fire. Angelina's mothering role in the family grew even more necessary when her father Tommy died just months after the fire in a motorcycle accident, also injuring a little sister. She was forced to work 18 to 20 hour days in order to look after the family, with no help from anyone. At the six-month mark of the investigation, police had explored all the avenues and tip-offs they had received, and by now they were desperate. They'd ruled out the rumour that the house next door a notorious drug den may have been the intended target of the fire. All other members of the Hasty family were ruled out. Detective Ron Sagar and his team looked into the backgrounds of the young Hasty boys. They were given a tip that one of the Hasty boys, Charlie, was known to visit the local area known for gay sex work, a place where they would offer services to make extra money. For six weeks, detectives watched a block of toilets in Annalaby Road near the Hasty's home. Twenty detectives logged the movements of anyone who came in and out. From this, a list of 40 people came up as regulars to the toilet block and they were taken to Humberside Police Headquarters to be questioned. One of those 40 was 19-year-old local labourer Bruce Lee, who confirmed the rumour that Charlie Hasty's apparent activities for money was true. Bruce had also told police that he had personally engaged in sexual activities himself with Charlie for money. According to Detective Sagar, the tactic of the police was to come out blatantly and accuse each boy of starting the fire. They hoped that if the perpetrator was feeling remorse, they might crack under the pressure and confess. They were completely shocked when after numerous interviews, it worked. Detective Sagar accused Bruce Lee of starting the fire and suggested that his personal experience with Charlie Hastie may have been the root cause of it. What Lee replied with totally shocked them. I didn't mean to kill them. He said he was just trying to teach Charlie Hastie a lesson after he had begun threatening him and extorting money from him after they'd had a sexual encounter. He explained that Charlie, who was underage, began demanding money from him or he would go to the police and tell them. He felt targeted and mocked constantly by the Hasty family, too, because he had wished to date one of the sisters, Angie. He then told the detectives on the record what had happened. He said he approached the Hastys property, watching first from the shadows, until he could see everything was quiet. Just as police suspected, he approached the porch and the letterbox with the paraffin. He struggled with the matches and so decided to light some newspaper and push it through the letterbox. He had stood back into the shadows and watched the scene unfold. Detectives were shocked as Lee described the incident in perfect detail. He knew things that police had not shared with the public and they had no doubt he was telling the truth. Bruce Lee was charged with three counts of murder and a count of arson and remanded to Hull Prison to await trial. As police looked into the 19-year-old's background, they discovered a long, troubled history. His original name was not Bruce Lee at all, but Peter George Dinsdale. He had changed his name by deed poll to match his martial arts hero, Bruce Lee. He was born in Manchester in 1960, his mother Doreen both a factory and sex worker. His father not listed on his birth certificate. Born with epilepsy, Peter suffered from a congenital disease which left him with a paralysed right arm and caused him to walk with a limp. At six months of age, then Peter was sent to live with his grandmother until he was three. Afterwards, he spent his entire childhood in a hull in and out of children's homes, attending a school for the handicapped until he was 16. As a child, he continued to regularly visit his own home on weekends. He was also placed in a number of foster homes and was reported to be extremely difficult to deal with. A spokesperson for the council admitted the troubled child had a sense of loss and an overriding desire throughout his childhood to live with his own mother. He often went back to her but constantly found himself back in the government's care. Although he attended a school for the handicapped, it's been stated that his intelligence was not as diminished as people thought. He was believed to be quite bright and had a knack for details. This didn't stop people from referring to him as Darth Peter. After leaving school, he took up work at a pig market as a babysitter and for a local speedway track. A local man who ran a club for disabled kids in Hull described Lee as having an enormous chip on his shoulder often never showing up and performing every task under sufferance. Kids on the estate in Hull as well as referring to him as Daft Peter, even after he changed his name to Bruce Lee, also began calling him Limpy Lou. Following Lee's confession and subsequent arrest for the Selby Street Fire, he was charged with three counts of murder and a count of arson and remanded to Hull Prison awaiting trial. While on remand, the press had a field day, printing a picture of Lee stating that the Hull arsonist had been captured by police. The article in the paper was read by a local woman who recognised who she knew as Daft Peter and she didn't wait to contact the police. Almost six months before the Selby Street fire, after a visit from a neighbour, a pregnant Rosabelle Fenton put her seven-year-old daughter to bed and prepared to sleep herself. She was confident she saw a figure loitering at her front door. At the time, she was sure it was Peter, or Bruce Lee as he was known by then. She had yelled at him that day after she caught him hanging around. She went to bed but was awoken by neighbours outside shouting fire. Her house by that time was up in flames. After a dramatic rescue, both she and her daughter suffered serious burns with Rosabelle losing her baby and spending 11 months in hospital. Police ruled the fire an accident. Believing it was started by the neighbour dropping a cigarette on their way home, but Rosabelle was convinced the fire had been started by Lee. After seeing that he had been arrested for the Selby Street fire, she hoped the police would finally listen to her. They did. When Sagar approached Lee, still on remand, he asked Lee about Rosabelle Fenton's house fire. Lee, with a distant expression on his face, replied, Oh well, I did that one. Sagar realised very quickly that Bruce Lee may have been responsible for far more than he was letting on. Hull Police had investigated a great number of deadly fires during the 1970s, nearly all attributed to accidents, but now they were not so sure. Detective Sagar asked Lee if he wanted to own up to any more fires. Even though the coroner's inquest had found all these other fires the result of misadventure as opposed to arson, Detective Sagar was already telling police that he would attempt to have the inquest reopened. But he wouldn't have to. During an awkward silence, Sagar asked, And you have killed before, haven't you? Lee answered, I killed a baby once. Suddenly Lee snowballed, confessing to having lit over 100 fires and at least 30 major ones. Police had the task of determining whether he was telling the truth or not. They asked Lee if he would accompany them on a drive around Hull, showing the officers the locations of the fires he had lit. He took them to the location of at least nine fatal fires and numerous others. To trip him up, they took him to the location of a local blaze that they knew wasn't him. Someone else had already been convicted of that crime. It was on that trip, when he said he had nothing to do with that particular fire and had never been to the location, they realised he was telling the truth. After ten months of investigation into the fires dating back to 1970, Bruce Lee was charged with 11 counts of arson and the murder of 26 people, including three babies, five children, a man in his 90s and 11 men in one single fire lit at an old people's home. He admitted that in 1969, at the age of nine, he had been responsible for burning a local shopping centre down. The shocked police, having always believed that that fire was an accident. This crime, however, was committed before the legal age of criminal responsibility and would not be part of the charges. Lee told Sagar that he enjoyed the thrill of setting the fires and would begin to feel a tingling in his fingers. And that was when he would know it was time to light a fire. He would sometimes travel around either on foot or on a bike with a washing-up liquid bottle full of paraffin, which he preferred as his accelerant. He enjoyed standing back amongst the watching crowd dodging the fire trucks and the ambulances. When asked why he did it, he admitted, I like fires, I do. I like fires. Fire is my master. I am devoted to fire and despise people. Lee also quoted a Bible verse. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. When Detective Superintendent Sagar opened up to Lee that he sympathised with his upbringing, Lee said, I've always known I was not dragged up along Hessel Road. I was kicked from pillar to post. And to Sagar, he remarked that the detective was the first person to see it and to actually say it. Being caught for the Selby Street fire became Bruce Lee's undoing. Now all these fires, which had for so long been ruled accidents, had now become apparent murders. At the time, newspapers reported that Lee had possibly found motive in the hatred for certain people with homes and families. On January 20th, 1981... At 20 years old, after psychiatrists had examined Lee and determined that although he was a pyromaniac, he was fit to plead, he stood trial in Leeds Crown Court in January 1981. He pleaded not guilty to 26 counts of murders, but pleaded guilty to 26 counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and 11 counts of arson. Besides the charges for the Selby Street Fire, he faced the following charges. June 24, 1973. Arson and murder of Richard Anthony Ellerington, aged six. Lee, then known as Peter, was only 12 years old when he arrived at 7am at the front door of his schoolmate's home. He tossed paraffin into the window, lit a match and walked away. Five of the six Ellerington children made it out of the house but six-year-old Richard, who was handicapped, didn't make it out. October 12th, 1973. Arson and murder of Arthur Bernard Smythe, aged 72. Asleep in his armchair, Mr Smythe, who had gangrene in both legs, had no chance of escape when Lee climbed through a broken window and squirted paraffin directly into the room, lighting the fire and casually walking back out the front door. October 27th, 1973 Murder by Burning of David Brewer, aged 34 It would only take Lee two weeks to almost mimic his last fire This time even more callous than his last He'd had an altercation with Mr Brewer over his pigeons And the 34-year-old had clipped Lee over the ear Lee snuck into the man's house as he too slept in his armchair This time he squirted paraffin around the room and directly onto his victim as he slept. He lit the fire and watched as Mr Brewer ran around screaming, his neighbours calling for help, but it was too late. December 23rd, 1974. Arson and murder of Elizabeth Roker, aged 82. Lee broke into the partially blind elderly woman's home through an unlocked back door, which he left open for a cat. He admitted seeing someone lying in bed, but he didn't care, remarking, I did see someone lying in bed, but I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. I didn't wake him up to ask, did I? There was a break of 18 months in charges. But whether he started fires somewhere else or others went unreported is unknown. June 3rd, 1976. Arson and murder of Andrew Edwards, age 1. January 2, 1977, Arson and murder of Katrina Thacker, aged six months. January 5, 1977, Arson and murder of 11 men at Wensley Lodge. Harold A. Kester, 95. William Beals, 73. William Carter, 80. Victor Consit, 83. Leonard Dennett, 73. Arthur Hardy, 65. William Holt, 82 Benjamin Phillips, 83 John Ribby, 75 Percy Anderson, 77 April 27, 1977 Arson and murder of Mark Andrew Jordan, age 7 Deborah Pauline Hooper, 13 January 6, 1978 Arson and murder of the Viola Dixon family Christine, 24 Mark 5, Stephen 4, Michael 6 months. June 22, 1979, arson and grievous bodily harm by burning to Mrs. Rosabel Fenton and Samantha, age 7. In an interview read out in court, Bruce Lee said of his motivations, I had had enough of people pushing me around and treating me like an animal. I used to get sick and tired with the people I was with, and then I would just go out and set fire to a house somewhere. Mr Justice Tudor Evans stated to the court that Lee was a psychopath and an immediate danger to the public, and he was ordered to be detained indefinitely under the Mental Health Act. First admitted to Liverpool's Park Lane Special Hospital, and later transferred to Rampton Secure Hospital, where he remains almost four decades later. Following Lee's conviction, the Sunday Times newspaper raised questions about the validity of his convictions and some of the crimes he had admitted to doing and was convicted for. The Times suggested his apparent diminished intelligence was used to coerce him into admitting guilt and that many of his confessions were coerced, tiring him with lengthy interviews. The newspaper also questioned whether his limited use of much of his body would even enable him to have been able to start some of the fires. Detective Sagar was accused of falsifying statements to support the prosecution. Although Sagar successfully sued the Sunday Times for libel, the fire at Wensley Lodge, the old people's home where 11 men died, became the focus of a public inquiry in 1983. Lee admitted he was confused and tired when he made his admissions to police. He said he had been visited too many times by police for questioning while on remand and it had just got him down. When asked if he had told the truth in his confession, Lee replied that he had not. He had simply said yes because he was fed up with all the questions, was tired and was confused. He then said he was not aware of the consequences of his admission. He then denied that he had started the fire at the Fentons where the mother and the seven-year-old girl had been injured. He claimed that when he admitted to the fire, while on a break from questioning, a policeman had followed him out into the courtyard and said, come on, admit this fire, one more won't hurt. The public inquiry once again ruled the old people's home fire an accident. This was based on unsatisfactory forensic evidence and the fact that no evidence had been presented in the original investigation, suggesting it was deliberately lit. The murder conviction for those 11 men was quashed, and Bruce Lee was no longer held responsible. He then withdrew his two remaining applications for appeal. Had Bruce Lee got away with the murders of 11 men, or had he been pushed into a false confession? And what did this mean for the confessions of all the other fires he had admitted to? I'm Catherine Kelly host of Crime and Investigation's brand new true crime TV series Murder Town In the first episode I visited Hull a city haunted by a 30 year unsolved murder investigation you can catch up now on demand. Next Monday at 9pm I visit Dartford a town with a close community a famous bridge and a roadside killer. For more information on the series head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk and let us know your thoughts by searching for crime and investigation on social media or using hashtag MurderTown. The MurderTown podcast is hosted by Benjamin Fitton, written by Anna Priestland, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by James Colopy. The mind of a criminal can be a very dark place. But you're not scared of the dark. Are you? you? CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London. 25th and 26th of September, 2021. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. Tickets are on sale now. Visit crimecon.co.uk. Crimecon UK. The ultimate True Crime Weekend, partnered by Crime and Investigation. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.